Ladies and gentlemen, we are kind of back question mark esque thing. <laughs> that's that's all I'm gonna say for the intro, basically, because it's been what like three weeks. Yeah, like three weeks I think since we last last recorded. Took a nice little summer vacation in the midst of this hot, humid, disgusting weather. Other than the last like three days, honestly, and I was telling Rian right before we started recording, my mood very much depends on the weather outside. And when it's like perfectly cool and not humid, I'm in a great mood. And when it's not and it's damp and disgusting, I don't want to be around people, which is probably why I moved into my own place at, at a certain point in the last couple of weeks. So that's where I'm at. But anyway, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. What's up, Brian? How you doing? I'm doing good. I'm doing good, man. Uh, I, I'm kind of with I'm with you on the weather changing your mood thing that feels like definitely more of a thing now especially with us being inside on a more regular regular basis but honestly I mean I feel pretty good if it's just some sort of sunlight and even if I'm not necessarily going outside true so that's where it's like the humidity definitely sucks when you walk outside but in the least (laughs) like at least during those weeks during what was it like first two weeks of july there was so so humid um in the cities but it was still super sunny so at least like the mornings were very nice to look at outside my window but <laughs> yeah, I, and then I had no hours of, of like, going outside <laughs> exactly the hours of like 11 a.m to like 7 p.m or just no <laughs> yeah <laughs> so, i mean I, i'm not going to complain that it's not remotely as humid as it was but Listen, I'll take today any day, but neither neither here nor there. We're um God, what have we been up to the last like three weeks? I, I moved. That was my big thing. Rion's been in between new roles, like jobs. Let's not like new podcast <laughs> roles, like new actual work. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm broadening. I'm broadening. <laughs> Rion's working three jobs. Yeah. It's yeah. <laughs> compensated for all of them appropriately but yeah no that's i mean that's been the biggest thing like i feel like when it comes to anything football or soccer related i've i've been slacking a little bit in in some ways like especially with the olympics like i have not watched a single olympics match like of men's or i've watched like half of a women's match like that's the extent of my ability to wake up at six in the morning and watch soccer like i have I have limitations, (laughs) but like outside of, yeah, the gold cup and whatever CONCACAF and comma ball have to offer. It's been a, it's been a quiet couple of weeks. Yeah. I mean, just, just going with the Olympic stuff from the men's side, at least like I've been watching, I've been watching like some YouTube highlights of games here of, of some of the games. Cause obviously like the timing for us, it's just not, it's not, it's it's not really feasible at all honesty yeah. um i mean sometimes there are 7:30 games which uh i believe the gold cup sorry the gold medal game um this saturday is going to be at 7:30 i think it's spain and brazil so spain and brazil yep um so so maybe we'll try i'll try to get up for that one uh that, at least that feels a bit more like normal <laughs> normal for how it will be during the season with the uh, Premier League games being on sometimes at 7 30 true but, um yeah it's a it, 
it's it's tough. And then from the women's side, of course, I think the only game that I got to watch fully was the match against the Dutch, um, where the the women won on PKs, but then obviously they, they end up losing to Canada in the semifinal. But I was saying to Alex before we came on here, like it it sucks that with that that soccer is just not a major Olympic sport. So I mean, as and obviously, especially not here in the U.S. So where you see like the swimming, um, track and field, uh, what else? Oh, yes. what, what what else is usually shown at like oh gymnastics? Gymnastics, of gymnastics yeah, is a big yeah. one too. Um, those are shown like at at prime time on like app or, or NBC's main channel those are shown on a delay at like eight o'clock or 10 o'clock even right so they'll they'll still show you the recording but they don't really do that for any of the soccer and and they don't do that for the women's and and they don't do that for the men's especially I mean they wouldn't do it for the men's um especially that the U.S. are not in it but uh that's what kind of sucks. That's what that's what yeah, sucks. That like yeah. even if it's not on the main channel, if they were showing like the U.S. women's game on one of the other streams, NBC streams at like eight o'clock or something, I <laughs> I, I think I, would, I I mean I think I would have would have um, definitely tried to watch more. But uh, my fix was definitely definitely uh, more filled on the men's side at the, in the Gold Cup. So. Even though I didn't, even though we didn't get that kind of delayed recordings, we we I still got the the gold cup, and that ended up being a very very <laughs> uh, worthwhile watch for the for those three weeks. It was so. Why don't we yeah shift focus towards the gold cup because the Olympics really unfortunately have not been at viable viewing hours for most of us. But in the context of anything. I guess CONCACAF related the last two tournaments that CONCACAF has hosted, obviously, yes, the U S men's national team has won, but they've been pure chaos, like to its core, like nothing else, but chaos. like there was a point during the gold cup final where, where I thought to myself, like this is the type of football that I think would attract non football loving fans in America. Like this is the kind of pure BS entertainment that I think people like would want in, in football or in soccer. And it's almost a shame that it only comes around every couple of years. <laughs> like that was, that was the real chaotic, like nature of me coming out. No, it was, it, it was a very entertaining, um, it was very entertaining, even outside of, I think, the U.S. and Mexico. Canada was impressive. Um, and it feels like, and, that, and they were without Davies and, and Jonathan David for this tournament. And I think they had a, they had a pretty big injury in, the, uh, in their match against the U.S. in the group stage, which, which was unfortunate. But um, even Canada looked really, really like entertaining. And, and I think like, during World Cup qualifiers, they'll be a fun team to watch and i think they'll also be a pretty a good challenge for the u.s and mexico and and i feel like that team has a great chance of making the world cup um in 2022 but you're you're right it's like the the chaos especially of the finals you look back at like the nation's league final which was just which was like another level (laughs) of chaos um but we saw something similar in the 
in the final for the gold cup although with a much different context right uh considering the players that were not available for the u.s or i wouldn't even say not available the players that were um allowed to take a break from the national team for the gold cup and at the end of the day i mean it's a a great win for for that for that group those group of players considering for the most part I, i believe it was Eight of Mexico's starting 11 from the CONCACAF Nations League final were playing, were starting in the Gold Cup final. So yep. I think that's really impressive for those U.S. national team players to honestly like, just stay in that game for as long as they did. Because we can, we can get, I guess we just kind of get into the game a bit, right? Like the first half was just, was a lot of, um, bunkering down and and kind of holding the line against Mexico and, and finding some times where they could where US actually did high press very well and I think it was Ariola that hit the post off of off of like really good high press from the US but you know they were really cohesive even if not fluid but they were really cohesive and it was it was like really really um endearing the whole performance throughout that that tournament for these guys yeah no it's it's a good point and before i even mention anything about the final or about the rest of the national team i do also shockingly want to shout out qatar for their performance during the tournament they were I mean, also they impressive. were yeah yeah they were quite an impressive team the last time that i properly analyzed the qatar their qatari national team was I think in 2016 when they were part of like the Copa America Centenario that came in the U.S. and they were one of the the guest countries. Again, weirdly enough, becoming a guest country in this CONCACAF tournament. But that again, not getting into the politics for that. <laughs> and I would just like to shout out their performance, especially against the U.S. Um, in which I almost texted you this, Rihanna. I forgot to tell you this, but I almost texted you saying this could be the game where the U.S. go out in the gold cup. Like this could be the, the surprise game where they absolutely get knocked out by Qatar. Um, and they were close to it, but of course we know how that, that ended um, towards the end of that game. So going back to what you're saying about the final, right? Cohesiveness, but not fluidity. I really like that phrase because I think this team basically is a combination of let's say 20 ish players that are all going to be fighting for a spot to go knock on wood (laughs) to the world cup in 2022 in Qatar. It's pretty fair to say that not all of them will go, but what's important to take away from this final and from the national team as a whole during this tournament is that they did look like they had the making of a team that could come together and play very fluidly in the future. I think that there's a gap between probably management style and what, these players talent uh, I guess profiles are like versus whether or not the talent is even there right we're kind of past that point this is the golden generation of the U.S. men's national team the next eight years probably is what's going to really make or break how far they go in international tournaments but I do think that there's something to be said about the skill gap at the managerial level which obviously you feel very passionately about but I think that is that that's a pretty key part yes. of this yeah, I, I and look, I, I after the what last two months? This is two trophies in two months. 
two final wins against Mexico, um, where I think that honestly this Gold Cup win was more impressive, um, even from how the team played in the final. Like I, I think that, I think that the team played this. This was a different group of players, obviously, so they had to play a little dif- differently. Um, I think the performance in this was honestly more impressive than than the performance in the Na- Nations League final. But well, wait, no, why? Why do you say that? I'm actually curious because I don't know if I. Well, I, I don't know what you mean by more impressive. First off, I I say more impressive because they the team looked more. Um, the team, like I said, more cohesive. I, I think in the Nations League final. It was a lot of scrapping. Like you think about yeah, the goals. Yeah. I, I, granted, the, the winning goal in this one was was a set piece, right? But they didn't create anything close to like the the high pressing chance, couple chances that they created in this final. Like compared to the Nations League final, like they, they just didn't. And um, and and I think part of that has to go to fact that these guys in the, in the gold cup they were playing with each other for like almost a month right and so i think their i think the performances got a bit better each time and, and i think like in, in the final that was probably their best performance as a team um think considering like what the assignment was um but in the nations league they only had what like a week to 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 play together and, and granted that was a those guys were way more talented right and you would expect them to play like in a, in a, you know, more co- fluid way. Right. But they didn't, they really didn't in the, in the nation's league. And I think a lot of that had to do with just the time that they had to play together in that tournament. Um, and the fact that they were all just coming off of uh, their European leagues ending. Like, I mean, for Pulisic, it was like not even a week since yeah. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. from the champions league final. So, you know, that's why I'd say this, I think this performance was, was better and more impressive as a as just a team performance but going back to um the the comments on like Burhalter, the, the national team coach like I a- after winning this this trophy as well like they're throwing in the nation's league I can have all of my I, I still have my uh critiques on you know how the team plays I still have my critiques on you know the defensive setup and and whatnot there but so much of this so much of what we've seen in international soccer too is like even the best teams don't play well don't don't necessarily play that well oh yeah um in tournaments when they win so and and the credit that has to go to greg berhalter is in how much the team seems has a very seems to have a very good spirit about them how much they seem to always really enjoy seeing each other score um how much they seem to actually genuinely like playing for him and i just after like after like all the things i think we've seen in the last couple of years especially in club soccer um just having a manager that the players like that's like a pretty good first step <laughs> like that's yeah. like a pretty good yeah. step and and that's not to say that I think that, oh, Berhalter should be the guy going through 2026. Um, I'm not saying that, but, uh, but I will say the foundation that he's building for this U.S. national team program going forward, he's building a great foundation 
And I still think that when we get into World Cup qualifying and um, you get the guy, the European guys to come into it, I think there's a, still a foundation in at least how the team plays for this to go up another level. And I don't know, I don't think it'll ever look that fluid and that, you know, beautiful on the eye. I don't think we're going to see Tiki Taka stuff from, from this, from this team. <laughs> I like, don't think we'll under, see it under Greg places, but yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, not, yeah. I, I don't think we're going to see, or, like you look at how Mexico plays, like even Mexico plays some, there's some beautiful like attacking movements and we don't see that enough, I think from the team. And I, and I have my critiques there, but it's just, I, I can't, I can't fault him at this point, you know, for, where he's taken this team from like the nadir of obviously 2017 <laughs> and then even going back to two years ago when you know we we recorded uh, well, a day after that Canada loss and I was like depressed from the watching that game so like it, it's it's like leaps and bounds from that point and I think we have to give credit for to him there before we even go into you know what what this means um what we learned from just like the player side of this tournament yeah, no, that's a fair point. It It is kind of interesting when you put it into context, like how far the team has come in the last four years, because I don't know if many people really look at it in that context, because I think a lot of people have probably blacked out that period of time in their lives, especially <laughs> yeah. U.S. men's national team uh, fans have certainly blacked that out. But I guess, I guess it is time for you and I to give Greg Berhalter some credit for – not only winning these two titles, but more so I would give him credit for building up and creating almost a pipeline that that makes sense for, for the national team. Like creating a pipeline that's very yeah. feasible for players that basically were, say, on the Gold Cup roster or on the youth team right now to be able to play at such a high level. And I think a large part of that is, yes, down to funding and things like that, but more so more so their experience outside of the u.s which which is fortunate and unfortunate right it's a, it's, it kind of has a it's a double-edged sword but i want to i want to focus in just quickly on the context of the gold cup final and just say that you may disagree with this but i actually think the gold cup final is not a significant milestone for this team the, like, I, I don't mean that to say, like, it's an insignificant trophy or, like, we should just move on like it didn't happen. What I mean by that is it was pretty low risk, pretty low reward going into the Gold Cup, right? Like, the U.S. very specifically did not take their top 15 players to this tournament. With Okay, maybe one or two exceptions. Did not take, take those top 15 players. Mexico absolutely took their top 10 players with, again, one or two exceptions. Yeah, without but, you know, those exceptions being Jimenez, who was right. coming off of his, his fracturing his skull not, not too yeah, long yeah, ago. Yeah. And then, um, you know, Lozano gets – they brought Lozano, so actually he, he just got injured in the first game. And, right. and who else? Uh, Ochoa and, and Linez would be the other two guys right. who, who right. went to the Olympics. So, Yeah, and the reason why I bring that up is because – the U.S. should get more credit for making the final than winning the final in my, or yes, making the final, not winning it because a, a final game is a one-off performance, but more so 
they were probably closer to losing this game more times than they were winning it. And I think that's more credit to, I would say more discredit to Tata Martino in Mexico than it is for the U S men's national team. Cause I do think that if they had lost this gold cup final, we're sitting here and saying, okay, well they were playing Mexico's a team basically against yeah. a B or a C team, right. For, for the U S it's not really an apples to apples comparison. Now we're sitting here saying, Oh my God, we're, king of the world (laughs) you know what i mean because we squeaked out a win and i think that you have to be able to apply the coin on both sides it's not just that oh my god we're 10 times better than mexico now that we won with with the b team it's okay we took a b team recognizing that we're not playing with our best players which is an incredible feat but there's more to build on now there's more to look forward to towards the end of next year and so it's all it's all about context, um, and it's not to diminish the the win or Miles Robinson, who is my light skin king. It's like it's not that at all. Um, it's more so to just point out that there are bigger things that the U.S. men's national team now can look forward to. Yeah, I I totally understand you there, and, and I agree with you on the low low risk side for sure. Um, I, I'll disagree on the the low reward side just because, um, the what we learned about the players in this in turn from a depth point of view for the national team going into world cup qualifying. I agree with you. The result, not like the result doesn't matter. I, I think the final result didn't matter so much to me. I was fully ready. Like at any point in that game for Mexico to score, every just be like, ah, oh, well, you know, yeah, they've, they've created, they've created a few more chances granted, like not fantastic ones, but um, I was ready for that for a loss to come there. I was even ready for a loss in the Qatar game. I think by the semifinal, um, I was ready, not just ready. Sorry. I was actually very content with what I learned about this, the team and um, up to that point. And I felt very good about uh, some of the options that, that the team will have in, in world cup qualifying. You talked about miles Robinson. He has shot himself into a position where he very well might be the starting center back next to John Brooks in, in that, in that first world cup qualifier. Yeah. Yeah, like, yeah. yeah. That like, that's something that something that we weren't sure of going into that tournament and coming out of that tournament, playing in pretty much the environments or at least the level of competition and intensity levels that there will be in the, in world cup qualifying. We learned so much from, from just hit from, him in terms of how he handles that pressure and how beautifully he played in the final i will say that like, he was one he was outstanding in the final outside of his goal um you think about guys like matt turner who now i genuinely think there has to be a conversation in terms of him becoming the number one because of purely his shot stopping ability is it's better than zach Steffens. i'll just put it that way like yeah you were you were like, pushing this agenda I, I, I needed to learn this too. And that's what also I learned from this, from this uh, <laughs> tournament, right? Like this is not to put shade on Zach Steffen, but the nation's league, it, I think it was the Honduras game. Like a couple of times he just makes some really questionable decisions and he's, he's not, uh, I just don't think he's better than, than Matt Turner at, at shot stopping. I'll, I'll keep it at that for now. But um, 
also for guys like Kellen Acosta, who was great in that in that final too. Like he was like ten out of ten. Him unbelievable. Yeah, unbelievable. Um, so like learning that he could potentially also be a guy who can be the backup to Tyler Adams at the six, or even at times play in like a midfield three with with um with him, and you feel confident about it. Like that was great. Um. And outside of that, like guys like James Sands, who I didn't know much about at all going to this tournament, who played center back, like more or less out of position for most of the tournament. And he had his shaky moments, especially in the final. But I think there's enough there to show, to show that he can be an option during qualifying. And going outside of that, like the, the young guys who are now on their way to making moves into Europe, like guys like Sam Vines, who played left back for a lot of the, the Gold Cup, and he's moving to Belgium, to Royal Antwerp. Uh, there's Gianluca Busio, who played a lot of this tournament, and I think impressed at times. I think he's still there's still areas he has got to get better at, but he's going to play for Venezia in, uh, in Italy now. And he's going to be wearing those fresh jerseys. Yeah, he record. will be. He will be, yeah, yeah. And so... This was big for them. Um, I also throw a shout out to like George Bello, who played, who started the Gold Cup final left back. He plays for Atlanta right now, but rumors that he's going to uh, Galatasaray sometime this summer or, or next winter, or sorry, or this winter. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I gotta say, like coming out of this sort of out of this tournament, it, I feel very, very good from a depth point of view um, for the national team, and that's going to be really important because. I believe for at least four of the rounds of of international play this this uh, upcoming season, there's going to be three games during, during the international during international break. So it's going to be really important to rotate. And I think that um, what we've learned from the Gold Cup is that we can feel confident about about rotating out like some of the best players um, and still being able to pick up wins uh during concraft during concacaf world cup qualifying so yeah that's and i think a lot of these guys from the gold cup roster are going to be playing a pretty significant part in world cup qualifying like you mentioned kelly anacosta like one of the most interesting things about him for example for me is that i think the last national team match that he played was during that world cup qualifying period in 2017 like that stretch between whatever 2015 probably in 2017 was like the last round of games that he was a part of. And now you're seeing kind of a resurgence from him and and maybe a couple others that you mentioned. I'm not going to go into great detail, but the point being that those those members of the team probably that were former members are also going to be needed, not just the ones maybe that we saw in the last two months. So, yeah. And oh. this last, last, the, the last big win from this uh, final before we head off to a break here. Uh, Jackson Yule is probably <laughs> never playing for the national team. He's not playing. I'm not going to say never, but he's probably not playing for the national team during this World Cup qualifying cycle at all. And that was a great thing that some of us who, are, who watch the national team already knew about Jackson Yule. But after the first two games uh, in the group stage, Burhalter himself just never played him another minute. So that was great. That was that was another big win from this. Yeah, well, uh, just ruthless 
absolutely ruthless uh stuff from rian i mean i think that was his that was his first cap right this no no during... it wasn't it was not i could have swore that it was his first he started in the, the nation's league semifinal against honduras a big reason why we just looked not remotely fluid <laughs> uh and and i believe he started the final too like it was it's yeah so i i think that his time in the national team for at least the, probably the next year and a half is is come to an end fair enough fair enough i'm not gonna that there's some hills i'm willing to die on this is definitely not one of them <laughs> so with that We'll take a quick break. Clearly, the U.S. men's national team is going in, a, in the right direction. Still some question marks around Greg Berhalter. I'm surprised you didn't call him Egg at all during this. Oh, no, entire... he's lost that moniker now. He, he's earned it. <laughs> he's earned, he's earned um, that nickname to die. <laughs> all right. So nicknames on prohibition um, until further notice, which is usually a good thing. So anyway, we'll take a quick break. We'll talk a little bit about uh, general preseason. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to part two, or not part two, it's just the second half of the podcast, talking a little preseason action. What's going on in the world outside of the national teams? Of course, we had the Olympics, we had the Euros, we had Copa America, we've gone over all of that, we've gone through, of course, our beloved U.S. men's national team. So let's talk some club football. There are so many different narratives and storylines that we always love to get into. Probably my favorite part of preseason is just the imagination, the imagination of certain players that can play where certain stars that should never choose certain clubs or consequently should in some scenarios. But with the European League starting up in about 10 days to two weeks, depending on uh, which league you're referring to, or even two days. Or, or even two days in the case of, I think, Liga. Well, Rian, what's been, what's been your favorite story of the summer? I've got like two. Uh, I've got one and I've got one, like one favorite one, one that I actually hate that I want to mention anyway. So, but. <laughs> um, I, I think my favorite story, that's developments, I guess, for from this summer, is if we weren't sure about or convinced of like the financial prowess of the <laughs> Premier League before this summer. I mean, they are almost every team is operating in England as if there was no COVID stoppage yeah, at basically, all. Basically, like, basically. Yeah. And comparing that with what's happening around the rest of Europe, where I guess like my, maybe my one a uh, story, favorite story here is being saying favorite is probably a bit cruel, but league on, uh, they are still unsure of their broadcast deal for this upcoming season, and there are so many teams outside of basically Marseille and PSG who are just like at their wits' end in terms of being able to figure out their finances going into this season, and so. You see that there. You see what's happening, obviously, in Spain as, you know, they just got somewhere around $3 billion in U.S. from CVC, the private equity firm, for just money for that the teams needed. Um, teams like Alex's beloved Barcelona, of course. Oh, I played uh, the fifth during this during this time, <laughs> just for the record. 
<laughs> and then you then you go off to um Italy. We're in Syria. <laughs> we're looking at Inter Milan, who were wonderful last season in the league and finally broke Juventus's um stranglehold over Syria. Looking at them selling two of like their three best players, two of the three or four best players in this summer with Akraf Hakimi going earlier to PSG. And now it's looking like it's just a matter of when, not if, with Romelu Lukaku moving to Chelsea. It, that has been stunning to me. Just the the level of like almost endless money that the Premier League has right now, especially compared to the rest of Europe. That has been just really eye-opening. And like, it was something that we knew already. Like we knew that there was so much in their broadcast deals and um, so much more money internationally being made by, by uh, the Premier League. But it really shows when there's a full-on financial crisis for just about every other league in, on the continent. Yeah. Yeah, no, you make you make a really good point. And every one of those like transfers, potential transfers that you mentioned, all have to do with big money spending within Premier League clubs. But that's a really good segue into my favorite story of the summer, which is Harry Kane standoff with Spurs. And for all of the comical reasons of Harry Kane not only not showing up to training, but choosing to actively stay in COVID hotspot, Florida, USA is just a real cherry on top for me, but more so from like a footballing aspect. What's really interesting to me about this is both sides of the story, right? You have Harry Kane side and you have Spurs side. Spurs are in a position where they not only brought in a new manager in Nuno, so had to pay him, had to pay agent fees, whatever, to bring Nuno in. They're also in the midst of signing at least two new players or have signed two new players, depending on when you're listening to this. One of which being Christian Romero from Atlanta for 40 million euros. So all of this is telling me something about Spurs. It's telling me that Daniel Levy is not, doesn't have a monetary issue. Like we originally thought, right? Like there was a massive push, especially in the Amazon prime documentary and over the course of the last year and a half, right. From the news and from the media that, Premier League clubs, Spurs specifically, were kind of cash crunched. And for a team that just built a new stadium, you could almost understand that from a public view or public eye. But now with them going through basically a spending spree, it's like that cash crunch didn't really exist. And it was kind of fudged in a way, or maybe it wasn't. And some nice and neat accounting tricks like we do in Barcelona were made up. I don't know. It, like, it genuinely blows my mind. Because then you get to the other side of the coin and say, who wouldn't take 100 million, 120 million euros for Harry Kane right now? Like, who, I, I'm, I'm saying that obviously from the position of someone that's very neutral in this. But if you're Daniel Levy and you really are like strapped for cash or you are going through a rebuild right now, yeah, you're probably not going to get much from Harry Kane at all this season in terms of just performance like his head is in a completely different direction so i don't know it's such an interesting narrative and story for me that i don't think ends well for for spurs quite honestly um in the sense that it's a lose-lose like it's a lose-lose where they either literally lose harry kane to another team 
or they keep Harry Kane for another season. He's pissed off, ruins basically the entire locker room atmosphere and kind of like, I don't want to say he wouldn't be a professional, right? But there is an aura of that hanging over you as a team when your star player wants to leave. So I don't know. That's all. That's all I'll say. Yeah, I mean, it's we talked about this um, what, like a few months ago, obviously, when these room reports were first coming out that he would be requesting a, a transfer and looking to leave the club in the summer. The, the leverage is still in Daniel Levy's heads because of that contract that Harry right, Kane right. signed. He, he still has three years left on it. Um, and that's ultimately... Harry Kane's fault, Harry Kane and his agent's fault for sure, for signing that six-year deal when they did. But you're right, they're in a tough spot now in terms of, I I mean, I'd like to say it's not a lose-lose, like if they they sell him, they get a lot of money, then they can reinvest in and and bolster the team in different ways. But then I think back to like nine years ago, and I thought this a very similar thing when they sold Gareth Bale and it's it's a bit of an you you want to think it's an untenable or you want to assume that's an untenable situation now um and it's just hard to tell where it goes and now you see Jack Grealish is on his way to um Manchester City that they're basically signing that paperwork I think they've probably already finished signing that paperwork um, for hundred million pounds. And, and you're thinking that now it's like, why wouldn't city go and now go pay for the money for Harry Kane? Cause I assume that when Harry Kane does go back to the Tottenham training ground, assume he'll have a conversation with Levy and, and uh, Nuno and, and um, their director of football and kind of reiterate that he wants to leave. And, I don't know. It's, it's, I, I hate to speculate, but it, it, it <laughs> just feels like it's going to be. I guess to be fair, too. It just feels <laughs> like it's going to be a really messy next three weeks, and I think that he ends up going to City. If I had to put money on it, I think he ends up really? going to City sometime in the. Yeah, I, I think I think it ends up happening. Um, but I think it ends up happening closer to the end of the month, honestly. He's already on track to miss the first game against Manchester City um, next week. So uh, yes, of course. No, he doesn't want to go up against his new club. I mean, that's fair. Oh, um, <laughs> so so I um, I would not be surprised if it doesn't ha- if the deal doesn't happen before then, and with it already being confirmed, he's not going to play in that game. I could maybe see it happening a week after that or something like that, but. Again, pure speculation. I don't know. Yeah, no, I, I agree. It is speculation. The one thing that is really interesting is that it's very rare, or it's very bold, I should say, that you see players taking a matter into their own hands and quite literally not showing up for training. Like, it almost reminds me, it feels like a, almost like a legal tactic, you know? Like, showing oh, yeah. that you are not part of the club in any way by not showing up to training, not showing up to any part of the club's schedule or abiding by it in any way like you're almost showing or like evidencing that you're not a part of the club anymore like that's that's kind of the vibe that it gives off and like like you kind of said it can only really end 
very poorly um yeah <laughs> you have to think about like what like the the levels the levels of how untenable the situation is in harry kane's mind to take these actions like this is not like this is not like Thibaut Courtois not showing up to Chelsea trading because he was just trying to push <laughs> a move back to Madrid. Yeah. Like, this is like, this is a guy who came through this club's academy and made it to a Champions League final with them, albeit he missed a lot of the run into that final, um, but has been so close to winning trophies with this club and considers them like his boyhood club and there's like a conversation about legacy and stuff here too like doing this how much does that tarnish it and also I guess how much can that all be forgiven if at some point he it's made very well um well explained to him that it's not gonna happen this season and he just kind of puts himself back into the mindset of Spurs and comes back to the team and who do, like once he scores if he comes back and he scores that first goal for them like i'm sure that the that all of those feelings will just kind of melt away from uh from the fans perspective and and they'll be back on his side but you know that's where this is like the sticking point in terms of his like legacy as a spurs player as a spurs legend so to say yeah yeah i, I agree with you i mean it's very much up in the air it's almost like uncomfortable just like waiting and seeing what comes next from this whole saga um but there is i I will say there's one saga outside of this that i'm very very interested in and it's not jack Grealish city you know it's not basically has very little to do with any of the clubs we mentioned i'm gonna surprise you haven't brought it up yet and i know you know what i'm gonna say but is the former Chelsea boyhood prodigy Romelu Lukaku really coming home <laughs> is that <laughs> is that really happening and by the way this is the one transfer I'm unhappy with more so because dear god do you really need any more help up front but like <laughs> secondly and probably more importantly if you're about to spend 100 million euros on a striker do you not spend that on on trying to get Erling Holland right now before he gets snatched up next summer i i i would i would almost ask you at least have you been following anything at all with chelsea's pursuit of, of erling holland oh I, oh I have has been <laughs> the exact as that has been the whole summer like um dortmund have made it very well known that they would rather lose out on 120 130 million pounds or euros pounds which whatever it would have been it would have been very a, much a lot <laughs> like like it would have been a lot and, and Chelsea would have been willing to pay it um <laughs> <laughs> like, I I they've made it very clear that, that their stance is that they would rather you know not get that money this year and keep him for this season assume that they will make the Champions League next season or sorry make the cha- make the Champions League places for this for this upcoming season and take the money that's in his release clause, which is reported to be 75 million euros. Um, take take that money plus whatever Champions League money, and they probably feel like that'll pretty much be the same as selling him for like 120 million or whatever. So I I think it's, it's 
I think it's out of the hands of um, of any club trying to get Erling Holland this this year. And when that's the kind of uh, the end of the story there for for Holland from a Chelsea point of view, then it's just they they, they know that they they know they need a striker. They they know they need someone who's who's genuinely very good at finishing. And we talked ad nauseum about this with Chelsea last season, like they create the chances but they're just very they were very poor at finishing as a team at a team level and um i think some of that will regress to the mean progress to the mean uh, depending on which, <laughs> depending on your depending point on which which yeah depending on yeah on which way that the uh, goals xg needs to move um <laughs> i'm sure some of that will happen but at the end of the day i think uh the club probably doesn't know half measures in terms of that. So that's where I think that hundred million is a lot. We all know that it's a lot and it's becoming the going rate apparently of anyone who's world-class who the public would agree is um, world-class talent. And I, I think it's also something that a lot of Chelsea fans, including myself will, think nothing about if um if Lukaku comes in and and scores even close to like 20 goals in the yeah. season so yeah, yeah yeah no super fair super fair I it's just for me like yes Chelsea need a striker but if maybe maybe it's a <laughs> the financial accountant in me saying, is it really worth paying all of that up front now when you could either wait for Holland or I guess really not persuade, you know, Bruce Dorman anymore, but you know, what's like, at what point do you just call it a day like this summer and just say, <laughs> it's not going to happen. It's not worth the money, but I don't have a good sense of that because I am not sitting in front of Chelsea's financial situation um, and thoroughly analyzing it. But I do think in terms of bringing Lukaku, I will say this, bringing Lukaku to Chelsea would be an incredibly big brain move by Thomas Tuchel and Roman Abramovich. I think not just because Lukaku's game in the last two years has progressed to such a high level, but more so the service that he would get at Chelsea from like basically like the half spaces, especially not the wider, but like the half spaces in between like a combination of Mount slash almost like Jorginho, basically like it, like the possibilities are endless for Chelsea. Like, like I would be so excited to watch this Chelsea team for the first time in probably like five years, basically, like really, really excited um, to see what they're like over the course of the season. So, yeah, I'll, I'll give you that. If you get Lukaku, yeah, instant favorites, like genuinely instant favorites. So I'm not even trying to gas you up. This is me just <laughs> – this is me being pra- pragmatic, actually. Oh, <laughs> uh, wow. And then I'll, I'll flip it to you, Elias, on a, on a transfer on a transfer question. Um, for Real Madrid – Obviously, we know that they're pretty upset about this whole uh, deal with CVC, and they're pretty upset that <laughs> that after they actually genuinely didn't try to, put, to pick up players in the last two years to try to be financially stable, uh, everyone's getting a bailout pretty much. <laughs> so, um, but but from their side out, we know what their obsession is, right? It's killing Mbappe. Yeah, and I pose this question to you: Do you think Mbappe? Do you think Real Madrid goes to make the move this summer, or do you think that 
Kylian Mbappe rides this year out and just leaves on a free? So in order to answer that question, you need to know where PSG stand and you need to know where Real Madrid stand. Real Madrid definitely would pay to bring him in right now, right? They haven't had a quote-unquote Galactico signing. They haven't really brought in any big players over the last two years, financial troubles being a big part of that, but also because where would any of those players fit in Um, or a player like Mbappe fit in? That question hasn't really been answered, especially now that Zidane has left. So now let me flip it to PSG side. PSG know that Mbappe's contract is going to run out next summer. They know that if he doesn't renew this coming year, they are going to lose him for free. Mbappe also knows that he wants to play at PSG another year. So where does that leave the selling club PSG? It leaves it in a position to do one of two things. You're either risking losing him completely for free next summer, or you're banking on the fact that he re-signs his contract during the course of the year, which is a very, very risky bet. Yeah. That, like I, that I just I think there's no chance in hell that he, that he signs that contract during the season no no 100 percent. and so that goes back to i guess secret option number three which is do psg admit that they're going to lose him next summer because he's not going to re-sign that contract and sell him for a hefty fee which realistically i don't know if madrid can afford even with this bailout like i don't know if well, maybe they could afford it, but I don't know if they would actually pay that kind of money. Because let's be honest, Mbappe is going to cost north of 150 million euros, right? We saw Neymar yeah. go for 222 million euros about four years ago. So there's no doubt in my mind Mbappe is going to be north of 150. The question is, in Real Madrid's mind, do they just say, if we wait, if we, if we outweigh you, we're going to get him for free. <laughs> like, he will have probably a higher salary at Real Madrid because of that, but they're good. Most definitely. It's a free transfer for one of the world's best young talents. And that, to me, in Real Madrid's eyes, is probably worth more, especially given their financial situation. So a lot of reports have said there's a there's a 40% chance that Mbappe comes to Real Madrid this summer. I don't see it. I think that he comes next summer unless, like, somehow by a miracle, this new contract is signed over the next couple of months. Yeah, and you have to think about what that means for Mbappe waiting out this contract, just running it down because he's going to make so much more money. If he just lets this ride out, he's going to be able to pit teams against each other for his contract. Yep. Mino Raiola is going to be, Oh my I mean, God. I mean, he's look, foaming, look, Raiola has enough money right mouth. now probably to retire <laughs> anyway, but <laughs> off of this one contract, if he, if he were to lose, every single cent of his earnings from past player sales and past payer, wow, past player movements, this contract for Kylian Mbappe enough is going to set up generational wealth for the Riolas. Like, <laughs> <laughs> so, so like that's the, the thought process there for, for Mbappe and, and, um, and his agent, right. They let this run and, and they can make way more money. And, all he yeah. has to do is, I mean, fingers crossed, not get a terrible injury, but it's it's a terrible situation from a PSG point of view, obviously. And um, and there's questions there, too, uh, in terms of 
the recruitment that they've done has been actually fantastic. Like you have to give, you have to throw your hands up, give him credit. Um, the Hakimi move, if, you know, I'm sure they're paying him far more than than what um, Chelsea probably would have, who are the other interested party for for Hakimi. And then they bring in Sergio Ramos, and yeah, we'll see, we'll see what Sergio Ramos has left in the tank. But from a leadership point of view, like that's obviously it fills the role of of Thiago Silva. Um, that they lost last year and Wijnaldum looked is going to be an upgrade in the midfield over um over gay like he just is yeah yeah, just it's going to be a major upgrade over him um and I like the I like the idea of a Verratti Paredes and Wijnaldum midfield three that sounds really good so yeah um so they've shown to Mbappe that they're they're ready to put they have the capabilities and have the recruitment, at least policy and recruitment um, know-how to get these players that they think will put them over the edge in terms of a, a Champions League title. But it, it's ultimately up to him. And um, and I wouldn't be surprised if they, if PSG perhaps tries to go back in to, for Paul Pogba maybe sometime before the end of this summer. I don't think that transfer will happen but that would be another player that they would kind of kind of dangle in front of Mbappe as like look there's another one here's like here's another one will we you got say? your best so, bud yeah yeah so we'll, we'll see what happens obviously from a an income incoming point of view from PSG but I think I agree with you I think I think more likely than not um Mbappe runs this contract out and I think that's gonna really piss off the PSG owners, but yeah. But to know. be fair, it's kind of on them. Like completely, completely. And and look, they could never stop this from happening. In all honesty, right, they, right. It, it, they built. They built obviously one of the three or four most talented squads in Europe over the last four years, but like the the level of what. Mbappe has done at PSG and what he could achieve at Real Madrid from a legacy point of view again like he'll like league titles whatever uh, perhaps the Champions League if if uh, Real Madrid are get their shit together in terms of re- recruitment next year just from a legacy point of view for playing for Real Madrid you think about Kylian Mbappe's like upbringing he from like a, a poor suburbs of of paris like playing for real madrid is the dream is like is yeah, like yeah the dream real madrid barcelona like that is the dream and and there's nothing that's gonna stop him from trying to make that move happen um even if he feels like delaying it for a year is gonna make him more money and make the move happen so i i think there's not really anything that PSG can do to to really convince Kylian Mbappe to stay um, at the club for more than another season. Yeah. I mean, I completely agree. It's just a, I don't want to say a sad situation for them because, Oh God forbid they get to go back to their multi-million dollar mansions at night and (laughs) sleep in double queen size beds or whatever they do. But for, for the sake of Kylian Mbappe, yeah, it's, it's a pretty big decision now that he has to make over the next, I would say six months I like Rian said, I think that he runs out his contract, ends up going to Real Madrid, and he just cashes out. Like he just massively cashes out. 
because um, Real Madrid are also in the middle of a, a mini rebuild. So yeah. we'll see how. From, yeah, I was gonna say sorry from from sorry to interrupt, but from a Real Madrid point of view, like this is the project. It's yeah. Mbappe. It's Erling Holland next season. Like that is yeah. that yeah. there. It's those two, and then any then than whoever else like in terms of their transfers off and they're they're gonna be setting up everything financially you know whatever from a from a um squad point of view those are their two targets next season yeah if they can get if they can get early holland for 75 million euros beautiful that like i i think that i think that um the, the sign-on fees for Mbappe plus Mino Raiola is going to be at least 75 million euros too. <laughs> yeah. So like, yeah. like they get both of those players for 150 million euros, like up front next season. I think they'll, that is their, that is it. Like that is what they are gunning for. So. A hundred percent. I'm very curious to see what next summer transfer looks like, honestly, more so than this summer, but I think there's one or two surprises, especially with Paul Pogba, you mentioned. I think there could be something there that there's an element of truth somewhere in the rumors always when Mino, like, you know, is just shopping or window shopping some of these players. But I'm very curious to see, like I said, what happens with Harry Kane more than anything. Um, we know that Messi's renewing his contract, so no, no issues there, of course. I'm only stressing a little bit because it hasn't been announced, but again, <laughs> it'll come. So, yeah, my summer's chill outside of that. But anyway, I think that probably gets everything yeah yeah and um just the last thing on when some of these european leagues coming back i know we mentioned earlier yeah on we'll be coming back this friday um and then next friday it'll be la liga premier league and bundesliga and then a week after that it'll be syria on the 21st so normal service will soon resume yes and all things will end well so with that ladies and gentlemen Thank you, as always, for for listening. We'll be back probably in a week or two. Talk a little bit more about the leagues and what else is going on. But uh, with that, stay safe as the COVID apparently gets worse, unfortunately. But stay safe, stay healthy. We'll be back very soon with some some more content. Thanks, guys.